Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Marco Atilahor, the author of Serbia, A Modern History, published today by Hearst. Serbia is a country that has inspired exceptional intellectual interest, says Professor Hoare in the opening words of his book. It was centrally involved in the crises marking both the start and end of Europe's 20th century, the outbreak of World War I in 1914 and the wars of Yugoslav succession beginning in 1991. Yet this interest has not translated into a large English-language historiography of the country. This exhaustive political history of Serbia from the first uprising against the Ottomans in 1804 until the collapse and occupation of the Axis powers in 1941, and its sequel, by the way, are seeking to fill that gap. Marko Utelahor is Associate Professor of History at the University of Sarajevo School of Science and Technology. He specialised in the former Yugoslavia for 30 years, which has included hands-on work with a Bosnian relief convoy and as part of the team prosecuting Slobodan Milosevic in The Hague. He has taught at Cambridge and Kingston and is the author of four books on Bosnia. Marco, welcome. Thank you. Let's begin with the origins of this book. It's big. It's close to 600 pages covering nearly 140 years of Serbian history. And you say at the beginning that you have a sequel in the works. Mm-hmm. So am I right in thinking from the intro that this was 20 years or so in the making? Well, it wasn't quite 20 years. I actually tried to calculate it the other day, and I think it came up to about 17 and a half years. So I began with a bit with a research trip to Serbia in the autumn of 2006. And obviously, there have been interruptions since that time. And I did other things. You know, I had children. I, I finished my previous book. <clears throat> but nevertheless, I mean, that's really how long it's been, 17 and a half years. It's also true I had some preliminary knowledge based upon my prior research in, in, into Bosnia and Yugoslavia. So it also had that, that background. But it's certainly been a very large chunk, chunk of my life. And did you always intend to split it into this 1804 to 1941 and then to today? Was that the idea from the start? Um, no, not, not at all. So uh, the initial intention had been to focus on a period which was, you know, I thought perhaps more of interest to the, to the contemporary audience. So starting with the Second World War and going up to the present day and covering the breakup of Yugoslavia. Um, but then I realized as I was researching that you simply couldn't understand this uh, later period without doing, understanding the, the previous period. So then I had the idea of writing a, a general history covering the entire the entirety of modern Serbian history since from 1804 until until the present day. And then it simply became became too big for that. So I sort of hit upon this cutoff point of 1941, which I think uh, if you read the book, you'll understand is a kind of natural cut, cutoff point. The um, country is born through a kind of a, a rebellion, rebellion, and then it achieves national liberation, and then it succumbs to foreign conquest. So there's a kind of a cycle which is being sort of played out in the story. Uh, so 1941 was really a, a cutoff point that came to me in the course of, of doing the research. It is a natural cutoff. And you write in the introduction early on in the book, you say that too often today, the history of Serbia is reduced to the background to the wars of Yugoslav succession in the 1990s. And I have to confess that includes me. In that respect, the book was a revelation because as a modern history of a European country, it's it's really amazing. It's how underdeveloped it was for so long, how culturally Turkish, which you emphasize, and the absolutely bizarre medieval dynastic struggle that was interlinked with the emergence of modern political parties. Is this what drew you to this 20, 30 years ago? Oh, well, well, no, actually. I mean, a lot of it was really, most of it was, was new to me too. So I, I mean, my mother is Croatian. So I that was what, what my entry point was. I was interested in the, the region, former Yugoslavia, because of my family background. Uh, and when the war 
broke out in 1991 in, in, in Croatia and then the following year in Bosnia, um, I was just very interested in, in the war and politics for that reason. So I began with an interest uh, in Croatia and, and Bosnia particularly and um, ended up specializing in the history of Bosnia. But after four books on Bosnia, I felt it was time to to move on a bit, to broaden my focus. And Serbia was that kind of the, the key country in, in Yugoslavia, the dominant country in the first Yugoslavia, and then the country that was at the center of the breakup of the second Yugoslavia. And I, I loved Serbia when I visited it. So when I visited Serbia for the first time, doing my PhD research um, and the research into my um, books on Bosnia, um, I just kind of fell in love with the country and particularly with, with Belgrade. Uh, so it was a country that's, if you've been to Belgrade, it's a, it's a lovely city. It's it's really a pleasure to be there and it's somewhere you kind of, you want to research. And I just felt I didn't understand it, but it was such an important country that I, I felt I, I ought to. And as you say, the history is colourful, and this history of dynastic conflict and the various coups uh, and, um, and and crises uh, was something that was just kind of drew, drew me in. So in that sense, I um, I wanted to understand what was going on. I hadn't been able to understand it from the existing literature. The book has a big underlying theme that Serbian history isn't defined by what quotes primarily by nationalism and expansionism unquote. But these are subordinate to conditions and conflicts within the country. And that argument runs through every one of these amazing political events that you describe. Why did you feel the need to push back against that perception? Uh, well, I should say, first of all, I, I really object to the idea that there are some nations that are good and some nations that are bad, nations or, or countries. So the idea that some nations are inherently aggressive or expansionist or, or, or kind of evil, it, it's really, I find it quite objectionable for a whole number of grounds. People tend to want to think that their own country is the good country and the opposing country uh, is the bad country. And then you have people on the sort of fringes who reverse that, people like Tucker Carlson or Noam Chomsky or whoever, who will flip that around and say that our country is the bad one and the opposing country is, is the good one. But actually, it's not intellectually. We, we will know we're at all objective that every country which has the capacity to do so has been capable of oppressing others and being aggressive and expansionist. I wanted to avoid any kind of essentializing of Serbian history to reduce the entirety of Serbian history to what happened in the 90s. But on the other hand, I have to sort of stress that I really did not know when I began this work what it was going to all be about. So it was kind of like a, a blank to me and I really started with very little in the way of a thesis. So it was a question of trying to find what was going what was going on. And I, mean, I, I really understood at the start a very little, little of what I came to understand in the course of, of my research. So, I mean, not to jump ahead too much, but I mean, for example, in, in a period before, immediately before the First World War, that the Black Hand and the Radicals were two opposing factions, which if you read the book, you'll know they were kind of structural opposites. The Black Hand were these elitist mili militarists, army officers, uh, and the Radicals were kind of po populists who advocated a, a democracy and sort of, uh, and sort of social conservatism and, and idealized the, pe the peasants. Um, but if you reduce it to nationalism, they look, they look, they look the same. I mean, they both, looked, <clears throat> they both believed in the greater Serbia and expansionism in uniting to the Serb nation um, across the different territories into which it, into which it was divided. Uh, so if you reduce it to nationalism, these two were similar, but, but actually they were opposites, structural opposites, and that's what history is, is about. So I, I came to this thesis in the course of, of understanding it on the basis of a prior knowledge that was very little, very limited. Let's go right back to the beginning. Um, for listeners who know as little of this history as I did before I read the book, can we set the scene with Serbia's place in the Ottoman Empire before 18, 1804? What led to the uprisings and the emergence of these competing dynasties out of two revolutionary figures? 
So it, it began as a, a crisis of, of the Ottoman state. So the Ottoman Empire had conquered Serbia and other um, Balkan Christian lands in the, um, the the 15th century. And initially, the Ottoman Empire was not to idealize, idealize it or to romanticize it, but it had been comparatively kind to the Christian peasantry, perhaps kinder than the native Christian aristocracy had been. So the Ottoman Empire wasn't a very oppressive empire. I mean, it, it was in some ways, I and mean, it did things like uh, kidnap um, children and take them from their parents and turn them into slaves. So it wasn't to, want to idealize it, but burden of taxation and services imposed upon a peasantry wasn't so oppressive. But as the empire declined, as it first stopped expanding, as it began to stagnate, the sort of ruling Muslim elite in Serbia became quite oppressive in terms of uh, exploiting the, the, the peasants for more tax and services. And particularly these janissaries, these kind of what had once been elite soldiers degenerating into a kind of mafia class that terrorized uh, and exploited the Christians. Um, so it became harder and harder to, to live as, as Serbs under this regime. Um, but also the, the rulers of the Ottoman Empire themselves, um, Sultan Selim III and other reformers, uh, realized you had to reform the empire to make it good, stop losing wars against the uh, Christian enemies against the Russians and Austrians. Um, so they themselves wanted to try and uh, rein in these abusive officials who were oppressing the Serbs and, and other Christians. So uh, ironically, you had this this kind of a um, conflict between reformers and conservatives in the Ottoman Empire, in which the um, the Serbs ended up on the side of the reformers, including the Sultan himself. So the first part of the Serbian uprising was an uprising against abusive local uh, tyrants officials. Uh, in alliance with the reforming regime in Constantinople. Uh, and, and then the question was posed, um, which Kara George, the leader of the first Serbian uprising, had to face, that do you then stop with a kind of limited victory, um, achieving autonomy within the empire on some basis, or do you go for broke, do you go for total liberation? And Kara George ultimately went for total liberation. He went on from fighting the Janissaries, the days and, and other abusive um, Muslim officials and to try and turning it into a, a general uprising for complete independence in alliance with, with Russia. And then this was crushed, this failed. And then his success of the leader of a second Serbian uprising, Miloš Obrenović, pursued the opposite strategy of just going for a kind of limited autonomy and very quickly moving to collaboration uh, in return for kind of being given a sort of basic Serbian autonomy. Uh, so in one sense, this established these two traditions in, in Serbian nationalism or national strategy, which persisted essentially to the present day, is do you go for everything in terms of national liberation and later unification? Do you go for broke? Do you do everything at once radically or do you do it in a piecemeal, gradual, pragmatic strategy? These two figures, Kara George uh, Petrovic and Milos Obrenovic, initially kind of represented these opposing strategies. <clears throat> but after Kara George was killed, his uh, successors, the Kara Georgievichs, uh, subsequent members of that dynasty, which he established, um, weren't any more radical than the Obrenovich dynasty or, or, or Shmilos established. So both dynasties were equally, if you like, conservative. And in fact, the um, Kara Georgievich dynasty was the more, the less interesting one. It was a more um, sort of, sort of narrow minded, if you like, sort of limited one. And the Obrenoviches were more in innovators. But the point was, was that these two dynasties, the reason you had this, this dynastic conflict between these two dynasties was that the Serbs themselves were so divided. So the, the conflict among the Serbs was such that if a faction was unhappy with the ruling prince, you always had an alternative dynasty to turn to to find an alternative po pole of authority. If you didn't like the Obrenovich dynasty, you could then turn to the Karadjordovich dynasty to find a replacement. So this dynastic conflict didn't cause divisions divisions amongst the Serbs. Rather, it 
reflected in divisions. It was an expression of a divided society, divided polity. Your description of the Abramovich regime, it sort of reminded me of the arrangement between the Kremlin and the Kadyrovs in, in Chechnya. They're given this autonomy and they essentially run it almost almost like a, a, a gangster state. Do you think that's a fair analogy? I think that there is a kind of a parallel there. Um, in a sense, it, we're talking about an, an arrangement for an empire to govern an autonomous territory, which it has conquered and repressed, but nevertheless, it realizes that sake of effective government, it makes sense to um, grant it some autonomy. I think that the, the Kadyrov regime is much, in a sense, more, more, more negative. So you had Chechnya existing for quite a long time as an autonomous entity in Russia, and then quite late in the day, makes its bid for independence, then it's crushed, and you have this extremely brutal regime established. Um, I'd like to see uh, the Serbian rulers under Milos uh, and its successors are some, somewhat more positive, and then they were building this new state under the Ottoman framework. But they were indeed very, very, very brutal and exploitative. So Milos was very ruthless in eliminating his political opponents. He was a despot. Uh, and he and his clique were ruling clique were very exploitative to the Serbian to the Serbian peasants. Um, so this statehood was not perceived as liberation um, uh, by, by, by the Serbian peasants um, very much. So that is, of course, the whole point of this story, which is that the Serbs achieved their autonomous statehood initially, really just a continuation or kind of a step forward from the kind of autonomy that the Serbs had enjoyed on the Ottomans uh, for, for centuries, um, limited local autonomy. Um, and this state, when it's created um, uh, in the 1810s, um, is actually, for the peasants, not much of a liberation. In many ways, seems the, continua the continuation of, of prior Ottoman oppression. You also write that uh, Milos was culturally quite Ottoman or Turkish, uh, had a sort of Turkish style to him. But you also write about how Muslim Belgrade was. C could you expand on that? This uh, Ottoman rule in Serbia had involved destruction of the native elite and was based particularly in the towns. So the towns were Islamized to a much greater extent. Uh, and the Serb nation then under the Ottomans became a, essentially a peasant nation. Uh, so you had these um, Ottoman towns in Ottoman Serbia, and they were really little more than villages. Uh, we would think of them perhaps more as villages today, and their population was Muslim, or it was members of ethnic minorities, um, Jews and Armenians and Tinsars uh, and others, and uh, only a small number of Serbs, Christian Serbs. So this culture, the dominant culture, was the Ottoman Turkish culture, and um, when the Serbs achieved this limited limited liberation in 1815, uh, they actually wanted to kind of adopt, you know, they didn't think, think look to Europe for their cultural leadership, if you like, or inspiration. They actually looked to their local Muslim Muslim former rulers. They began to wear Ottoman dress that had been previously for, forbidden to them. Um, and Milos himself dressed in the kind of Turkish style uh, during his his reign. And so, and you had uh, mosques in in these cities uh, as well. So there's a whole lot of mosques in, in in Belgrade that were eventually mostly mostly. Uh, dismantled in the short term, these cities continued to look quite, quite Ottoman, and also the, the liberation didn't straight away involve. It wasn't complete liberation, so you had these these Ottoman garrisons in in in, in Serbian towns, including Belgrade. So you had this Ottoman citadel in in, in Belgrade, which remained um, until the the eighteen sixties. So in all these respects, the country was kind of country and its new ruling class were very Ottoman. And the point about this arrangement was was that uh, it was an arrangement of collaboration in which the new ruler of Serbia, uh, Milos, uh, was 
essentially, in some sense, like a sort of Christian version of an Ottoman uh, governor. So he was tasked with keeping order and taxing the peasants, the serving population, and turning over the tribute to the sultan um, every year. So essentially, he was like a sort of administrator and tax collector for the Ottomans. So from the point of view, and this is really essential to the whole of Serbian, subsequent Serbian history, that the peasants tended to view this new ruling class as like a continuation of the Ottoman oppression. Not that much had actually changed for them. And in some ways it was worse because the Ottomans, uh, under the Ottoman rule before before the 19th century, the, the Serb Christian communities had um, their local leaders, we call them the Knezes uh, or the Oboknezes, and they were, had a, they were sort of communal leaders who inter, intermediaries with, with the Ottoman authorities and they were to some extent receptive to local conditions they had some level of democratic oversight on one part of the population towards them but when Milos took power he kind of turned them into a kind of instrument of his rule created a new ruling class uh, from from them and imposed his family members in dominant positions and they became much more absolutist much less democratic really in some ways worse than they'd been under, under the Ottomans so in some ways, it was even a step backwards in terms of communal autonomy for the Serbs. And this then meant when you had this kind of national popular politics developing and against this new ruling class, uh, it was directed as the, the internal enemy. You would see the Serbian ruling class as being un-Serb, uh, culturally alien, oppressive. First, it would see them as being just re replacements to the Ottoman administrators and just as bad. And later, as this ruling class became more Europeanized and along Central European lines, it would see them as being unserb culturally, like we call Europe, European, Western Central European, alien to Serb traditions. And that was very important for the development of Serbian uh, popular politics. That was something I found really interesting was how Austrian influence developed and was perceived. So sons, and not just elite sons, you, you say, were sent abroad for their education and they returned with often with liberal and nationalist ideas. But for other types of Serbian nationalists, these were seen as foreign ideas, alien to true serfdom. And you write, quote, antipathy to Austri Austrian Serbs as educated foreigners was an early manifestation of opposition to Serbia evolving along Western lines. Can you talk more about that? This ruling class, the new ruling class created by the Serbian revo revo revolution in the, the, 18, um, the start of the 9th century and the 1810s, the, the new ruling class was kind of oppressive, as I say, towards the peasantry. Um, but gradually, as it modernized, it began to uh, emulate Christian European dress and man manners, particularly with, with Austria. So Austria was uh, just a, the Austrian Empire was the big dominant state in the neighbourhood just across the river from from Serbia. So obviously you would look you would look there for a kind of immediate uh, uh, influence. Serbia was almost entirely illiterate country. There were very few native um, educated people. So until the new country could develop its own school system and train its native cadres. It had to import administrators from essentially the Austrian Empire. Uh, and in Austrian Empire, there was also a large population of Serbs. So uh, the Serbs uh, in, in, in Hungary, Croatia, the Serbs in, in these, these, these Habsburg lands, uh, Austrian lands, uh, were uh, more educated uh, and they could be recruited as, as, as administrators, bureaucrats for the new Serbian state, so imported. And they then kind of became a kind of conveyor belt for in, introducing um, Central European uh, cultures and manners as well. So this ruling class in Serbia was a kind of, the, the, the regimes, successive regimes were, were modernizing, they modernized the country. And this will then, meant they increasingly adopted this kind of European uh, dress and manners uh, while doing so, while continuing to exploit the peasants 
and treating them quite harshly uh, in regular basis. So sort of capital, uh, sort of corporal punishment, uh, often very abusive treatment, he heavy taxes in the eyes of the peasantry. You had this kind of then popular reaction, which unfolded over generations um, uh, against this new ruling class, uh, and it was focused, it came to be focused on opposition to this Europeanization of this new oppressive ruling class, and it um, focused in particular, particularly on these Austrian Serbs. So although there's this talk about Serbs as one single nation, you know, but actually these Austrian Serbs were largely viewed as as alien oppressors, as Svetozar Markovic said, the, 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 the Austrian Serb like Serbia the way the pigs like an, a, a forest full of acorns. Um, they were seen as exploiters coming in to, uh, 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 to oppress them, um, uh, uh, to oppress the natives, native Serbs from Serbia. So they were kind of like the early focus of this popular reaction, hostility to Austrian Serbs, that then became a more generalized opposition to this new ruling class and its Europeanization, which was seen as being alien to Serbian traditions. And then heading in the other direction, you have the development of the, of the plan and the beginning of a debate around top-down and bottom-up expansionism and the special place of the Bosnian Serbs. The Serbs under Ottoman rule had no national borders or administrative borders. So they were essentially scattered across a large part of the territory of the Western Balkans, so in land that today comprise uh, Serbia, Bosnia, Macedonia, Kosovo. And also they, they spread into the Austrian Empire uh, to the north. So there was no real natural way, no, nat no natural borders to, to kind of use as a reference point for your statehood. So um, it was essentially what territory you, you could grab. Um, and Serbia itself grew out of this territory, this province called the, the, the Sanjak of Smederevo, which was quite a small territory. Um, and when Milos came to rule Serbia, in a sense, if you were a ruler of a, a country, you don't really need an ideology to want to make your realm bigger. So it was what he could get. And he got a bit more territory back in 1833. Um, um, but he didn't really have any ideology of expansionism. He wasn't an ideological nationalist. He was just a ruler who wanted to kind of make a state, manage a state, and where possible, expand it. Uh, but what happened then was this new state was integrated into European politics and came into contact with uh, nationalist uh, ideas. So in particular, this constitutionalist party, well, the defenders of the constitution, the constitutionalists, and they ruled uh, Serbia uh, from the end of the 1830s until at the end of the 1850s. And while in, during the course of their power, struggle for power, some of them had been exiled in uh, Constantinople and had come into contact with a circle of uh, Polish emigres. And it was a sort of, in, this, in this time, the Russians were seen as enemies by this party of Serbs, by the constitutionalists. And so there was a kind of affinity with these Poles who were also opposed to the Russians. And so the irony is that, of course, that we think of the Serbs now as being pro-Russian nation, but actually a lot of his politics was developed in opposition to the Russians as a meddling uh, a meddling great power. This circle of Poles, and not just Poles, particularly important figure was a, a Czech emigre called František Zach, and they oppose Austria and they oppose Russia in this conservative era when Austria and Russia were a sort of partners, conservative, oppressive partners in this part of, of the world. Garashinin, Ilya Garashinin, who was a pioneering Serbian statesman uh, in this regime, uh, the interior minister, and he um, essentially copied his plan for expansionism from a draft produced by František Zak. So Zak uh, and other of his emigres from the Habsburg Empire uh, believed in the Slavic unity, unity of the Slavic peoples in opposition to both Austria and Russia. Um, but Garashinin kind of adapted this plan to make it much more purely 
serb, more serb nationalist, less pluralistic. But the point was, this was a strategy. Uh, he was he was a minister. He um, wanted to have a sensible strategy for kind of expansion. It was quite a moderate plan. It focused really primarily on, on Bosnia as a territory to be as a territory to be potentially annexed, uh, and then some other plans for you know, links with the Bulgarians and with the Serbs in the Austro-Hungarian Empire or the Austrian Empire as it was then, uh, and um, a sort of outlet, an outlet on the sea in, in northern Albania, but really it was, it was a very lim- limited kind of moderate plan. It was a sort of pragmatic, sensible plan for what a state could accomplish in its limited capacity. And subsequent rulers of Serbia, particularly, say, Prince Mihailo and Gorashin himself, again, in, in the 1860s, uh, were aware of what the limits were and, and, and what you could expand, realistically expand to get. Um, but when you had opposition to uh, this regime developing, it would be accused of being insufficiently patriotic. It would be accused of being, you know, un- unserb. As I said, it was seen as being uh, Europeanized and being sort of betraying Serbian traditions. Um, so these kind of opposition nationalists, populist opposition, would accuse it of being, of being sort of unserb and betraying the national struggle, being insufficiently patriotic and pursuing these goals. Mm-hmm. So you had, as with populist nationalism today, it's really not really about a sensible plan of how to expand your borders, but really about a kind of uh, an ideo- ideology or ethos in opposition to the, to the ruling, to the ruling elite. It doesn't have to be very rational. Uh, so when you have opposition politics developing, you know, accusing the Serbian regimes of being unpatriotic, uh, this kind of populist nationalism wasn't really very strategic in its in its national thinking. So they would dream about, say, a, a, a revolt of across the Balkans to kind of liberate Serbs everywhere from Ottomans and, and Habsburgs and from their own rulers. Um, but this kind of populist nationalism didn't then produce a very sensible national strategy, which is partly why it tended to produce an end, end, end in defeat. I mean, the 19th century politics you describe is very difficult to follow for an outsider because I, I find myself recognizing the emergence of lefts and rights as I would recognize them in other countries, but then wrongly predicting which grouping, whether it be the liberals or the progressives or the radicals, <laughs> who would hold more chauvinist or anti-Semitic or anti-Austrian views, or even which prince or which coup they would support. One of the interesting things, I think, is that this um, division in Serbia is perhaps more understandable for us Western audiences today than it would have been 20 years ago or so when when the book was being sort of, when I was beginning the book, which was just under 20 years ago. So we tend to think of politics in terms of the left and the right. Um, but what you've seen in recent history uh, in, in the Western world uh, is this rise of is populism. So now you have today, you have left liberals and they believe in, for example, LGBT rights and kindness towards refugees and uh, ethnic you know, rights for ethnic minorities. And then on the other hand, you have populists who will say these left liberals are really elitists. Their ideology is uh, trying to deny the power of ordinary people than the native kind of silent majority. So this kind of framework is perhaps better than straightforward left and right for understanding uh, Serbian politics. So essentially you have, to sort of simplify somewhat, you have two two camps. You have these elite modernizers who want to modernize the country along European lines, build a kind of modern state, and ultimately believe in individual freedom. And then you ha- have the um, populists um, who came to be embodied in the radical party who believed in democracy, power to ordinary people, power to the peasants. They didn't care much about individ- individual freedom. Uh, they weren't so concerned about things like the rule of law, uh, but they were in favor of genuine popular sovereignty, uh, a local control of of your municipality, uh, your local government, uh, and taxes and things, tax implementation and things like that. So these kind of like 
uh, two camps. And if from the point of view of today's perspective, both camps were in some ways, if you like, left wing. <clears throat> One group was in favour of Progressive Party with its ultimate embodiment, but it was more interested in things like establishing a national, the basis of a national health service or, or welfare and educating women, building schools, integrating minorities. And any, any other group, uh, the radicals, is more in favour of popular sovereignty, limiting the power of, of, of the monarch. Um, local control o o over resources, um, rights for the peasants, lowering of taxation, uh, being against the army, anti-militarism. <laughs> so you can sort of see this kind of this dichotomy between the modernizers and, and the populists uh, as being sort of central to the whole story. We discussed themes and, and the big picture here, but I'd like to pick out one particular episode because it is so extraordinary. The period from 1889 to 1903 reads like a ticking bomb as the court and the radicals seek accommodation. Milan abdicates but exerts power through Alexander, and this is threatened by his marriage to Drugger. So I, I really want to focus on the 1903 coup. Can you can you talk us through this crisis and, and the putsch that ended it? You had this, as I say, modernizing uh, Serbian regime, which had different manifestations. Essentially, the rulers of Serbia up until the 1880s were all kind of modernizing regimes that denied genuine popular uh, sovereignty to a greater or lesser extent. You had a turning point at the start of the 1880s when uh, Prince Milan, who later became the first king, king of modern Serbia, King Milan, appointed this government of the Progressive Party, and they were kind of, um, again, elite modernizers, but quite well-intentioned and naive, and they, they wanted to uh, make Serbia more democratic. So they actually did this thing of holding um, elections without police manipulation. So rather than having the police manipulate the democratic elections to ensure the right party won, they essentially stopped that process and allowed parties to, to mobilize um, and campaign freely. And this had the effect of letting the genie out of the bottle as far as uh, popular nationalism was concerned, or the popular national nationalist populist po politics. So the radical party, which was a kind of expression of his peasant uh, resistance to the new order, uh, led by these left-wing uh, rebels, uh, the radicals, and they began as left-wing and became more conservative as time went by, but initially they saw themselves as uh, as sort of left-wing rebels against the, um, against the ex existing order. And they quickly swept the board and became the absolutely uh, hegemonic party in terms of the popular loyalties of the Serbian population. So suddenly, uh, most Serbian voters who were peasants voted for this radical party that represented their interests against the oppressive state. Uh, and you had these two, essentially two elites uh, facing off against each other, the old elite represented by the, 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 the monarch, um, the army and the bureaucracy, and this newer elite represented by the radical party that was the voice, the popular voice of the peasantry. So throughout the 1880s, you had this kind of, these two elites fighting each other. The, the, the uh, monarch Milan was unwilling to uh, tolerate the radicals, and he fought with them to try to crush them. But ultimately, it became clear by the end of his decade that you couldn't really, the two sides had to reach an accommodation. The radicals were not strong enough to overthrow the regime, and the uh, regime couldn't really rule very well without some accommodation with his party that represented the Serbian people um, democratically. So then you had you you came to have this kind of attempt to form a sort of synthesis or ruling a, a ruling synthesis between these two wings of Serbian uh, the Serbian politics. So attempt you had a new constitution introduced in eighteen eighty nine that satisfied the radical party, uh, left them uh, hegemonic, allowed them to be in to be to control government, but at the same time the the the, the, the monarch and the um, army was there to exercise a real control. And this uh, synthesis was very unstable for a number of reasons. Firstly, because the monarch, the new monarch who 
Alexander Obrenovich found the radicals very difficult to work with. It was his power struggle who would be top in this coalition. Uh, but secondly, because you had this reaction against it on the part of what you might call the, the hard right or the extreme right, um, represented by the, by the old king um, Milan, who would abdicated in favor of his son in, in 1889. So <clears throat> this... Uh, hard right, call it a hard right or, 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 or extreme right a reaction against against the accommodation with the radicals uh, developed. And this then eventually grew into a kind of Praetorian reaction to um, to, des- to destroy destroy the regime. Now, the interesting thing is, would this have happened without the personality of Milan? It's a very strange situation where the old king abdicates in favor of his son, but then comes back to meddling politics. It's not entirely clear. Um, you can't really tell how much is to do with that, this accident, this dynastic accident. Um, but nevertheless, there was a body of opinion that didn't like the radicals and didn't want to work with them. And this then stated into this kind of uh, conspiracy to destroy the regime. And of course, the, the key factor was Alexander's decision to marry uh, Dragomashin, who was, um, by all accounts, a very intelligent and beautiful woman, uh, but was unsu- considered unsuitable by patriarchal society. She was kind of older than him. She had a sexual history and, and various reasons which we, we would consider sexist today. Um, she wasn't considered acceptable, but also she was she was uh, uh, pro-Russian, and people against her were uh, pro-Austrian, and she couldn't have children, which was problematic for the dynasty. So when um, Alexander decided to, to, to marry her, it created this breach with the hard right faction grouped around his father Milan, and then this gestated into a kind of conspiracy to to kill him, um, and this faction that came to kill him um, and based upon that faction that had been opposed to accommodation with the radicals and they um, uh, had no other way of operating except through this very brutal means of murdering the king and his supporters uh, and the queen. I mean they were a dynastic faction that was opposed both to the ruling monarch and Alexander and they were also opposed to the radical party that had the popular support. So they had no other way of operating except by um, by carrying out this, this coup d'etat, which took this extremely brutal form. So essentially what they did is they acquired various collaborators, including in the royal in the, in the palace itself and, in, and its defenders, its guards, uh, and they marched, a group of them, the army officers, uh, marched into the palace in, 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 in the nighttime, in the middle of the night. Um, one of their agents, one of their members of a conspiracy, opened the gates to them. They entered the royal palace and they then killed the king and queen in this extremely extraordinarily brutal way, misogynistic honor killing, if you like. They they brutally um, murdered the king and queen. They stripped their corpses. They they lacerated their corpses with their sabers. They threw them out the window. Um, it was a way of kind of like um, extirpating the sanctity of of, of a monarch and his person. Uh, and then they sent various agents to assassinate other members of the ruling of the of the government. So they 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 killed the um, the prime minister. And a war minister and tried to kill the interior minister, and a couple of other people as well. This then then created a situation where where this, um, if you like, hard right or extreme right had had destroyed the regime in this very direct, murderous way without any any real genuine support among the population. Uh, but then, in the situation to try and legitimise what they'd done, they had to then they brought back the Kalajorgerish dynasty um, to replace the now defunct Obrenovich dynasty. Uh, and they um, brought back this democratic constitution, which Alexander had abolished, this constitution that essentially turned Serbia into more or less a kind of liberal democracy, on paper at least. That chapter is amazing. I, it's like something from I, Claudius. I'd recommend anybody who, who gets the book to read it. The period after that, as you say, the, the superficial the golden age of Serbian democracy, 
but it, it reads more in the book like a sort of secret war between the black hand and the white hand. One of the big themes of modern Serbian history in this period is that you establish these constitutions or these dynasties or these monarchs, which on paper look, everything's okay, but they aren't old enough, they haven't been established long enough to command real loyalty among the population or among ruling elite themselves. So let's say that in Britain, um, not to idealize the British system too much, but Britain has existed as a state for a long time before that England. And so these institutions in England stroke Britain uh, have a um, convention behind them, precedent, which members of the ruling class will roughly speaking uh, respect and which the population accepts. But when you have these, these institutions in Serbia, which is a new country established very quickly overnight and then constantly changed, they don't really command much loyalty. So you had this democratic system being formally established in 1903, uh, but it didn't really didn't really hold much loyalty and it didn't correspond to the true balance of power. So now the radical party uh, could emerge as the leading party in Serbia formally and was normally controlling government in this period, the period between 1903 and the start of the First World War. But the real power was still in the hands of the army and the army was now dominated by this faction of conspirators who had carried out this brutal coup d'etat. So they kind of appropriated real power for themselves. Uh, and having destroyed the old monarch uh, and his wife and changed the regime, they weren't prepared to go back into obscurity and hand power over to the radicals. So they were still every bit as elitist uh, and anti-democratic anti, anti as they'd been beforehand. And they now did not want to concede power to this radical party, which they despised as being kind of the, the peasants, you know, the, the, the commoners. And they saw them as, as misgoverning Serbia uh, and pursuing policies they didn't like. But you also had the um, the new dynasty, the Kara Georgievich dynasty, in whom the most powerful figure was Prince Alexander, who later became king of Yugoslavia. And Alexander wanted to um, be the master of a situation, so he built up his own faction from the former conspirators called the White Hand. Uh, so what you had is these, these former conspirators, army officers who destroyed the old regime, now split into two factions, the Black Hand under Dragutin Dimitrievich Apis, which wanted to dominate Serbian politics in its own name, and this other faction, the White Hand, which went behind uh, Prince Alexander Karadjordjevich and were much kind of quieter, uh, loyalty, loyal to the, to, the, to the prince. Now, ideally speaking, in a parliamentary monarchy, the army wouldn't be involved in politics anyway, um, but both factions of Serbian parliamentary politics, democratic politics, began to seek these allies among these rival military factions. So the radical party itself split. Their opponents, uh, the, the, the split off the independent radicals and the liberals, turned to the black hand to counterbalance the domination of the radicals whom they hated. And the radicals conversely turned to the white hand to counterbalance this alliance between the black hand and their uh, political opponents. So you saw the situation where democratic politicians, people who are supposed to be Democrats, were allying with military factions to control the state, just to, to take power in the state. So it was a kind of cynical situation in which the army was politicized and political parties were allied to military factions. So it was a very unstable situation, certainly not what a proper liberal democracy should look like. You end the book with the rise of Yugoslavia, the first Yugoslavia. As I understand it from you, uh, from reading the book, you believe that this was essentially a projection of Serbian dominance and political struggles into neighbouring states and territories. No, we, we all tend to retrospectively to say there, was, there, was a, there were two alternatives for Serbia to achieve national unification. Either you could do it through a great Serbia or you could do it through Yugoslavia. Um, now, these two alternatives were not of a time seen as so 
posing as they have come to be, because essentially the territories you want to unify are largely the same. So whether you call it Yugoslavia or Great Serbia, most of the territories are the same. You know, the difference that Yugoslavia includes Slovenia and perhaps a little bit, of, a bit more of Croatia. But the real difference is that um, if you want a Great Serbia, you want to impose Serbia's institutions and government on the rest of East Slavic, South Slavic peoples. You want to impose Serbia's institutions on the Croats, uh, uh, the, the Bosniaks, Muslim Bosniaks, um, Slovenes, uh, and and so forth. Uh, whereas if you are Yugoslav, you want to immerse Serbia in these um, in the wider South Slavic whole, dissolve Serbia into a, a Yugoslav whole. So this Yugoslav option was, if you like, a more left wing or a more liberal one. It was opposed to the existing order in Serbia, so they wanted to dissolve it in this wider Yugoslav whole. Uh, whereas it's sort of the more conservative Great Serbian model was to extend this monarchical order of Serbia over the rest of the South Slavic uh, lands. To some extent, when Yugoslavia was created in 1918, it was attempting to synthesize or to synthesize these two models, but really it was more about imposing Serbia on the others. So the new Yugoslavia was established on the basis of Serbian domination. Serbia gave the new Yugoslavia its dynasty. The army was essentially an extension of the Serbian army. Uh, almost all the ministers in Yugoslavia, prime ministers were almost almost all the prime ministers were Serbs from Serbia, and the constitution imposed in 1921 was on Yugoslavia uh, was based upon the 1903 constitution uh, in Serbia. But there's more to it than that, which is that essentially uh, Serbia uh, exported these divisions across the whole country, and that I think hasn't been sufficiently acknowledged by the existing historiography. So essentially, because the new Yugoslavia was an extension of Serbia. It was continued to be governed by the same Serbian divisions that had determined Serbian history up, up till then. So first of all, the establishment of Yugoslavia was not constitutional. Um, the dominant figure, uh, who wasn't formally king yet, but, but uh, Prince Regent Alexander, essentially carried out a push to create Yugoslavia by royal fiat. He didn't really have a proper, proper constitutional foundation. Uh, so it then was the step towards the reestablishment of monarchical domination that Serbia had historically suffered under or experienced. Um, so you still had the same Serbian monarch attempting to establish his absolute personal rule uh, over the country, uh, but now you had more factions for him to play off against each other. So now, uh, rather than just having the radicals and the independent radicals and the now defunct liberals, uh, you now had a Croatian party and a Croatian Serb party and a Bosnian Muslim party and a Slovene party whom the the monarch could manipulate to establish his uh, personal domination, as previous Serbian monarchs had um, tried try, tried to do. So that what was interesting to me doing this history was once you've studied the, the first Yugoslavia, the Yugoslav kingdom, against the background of Serbian history is how little actually changed. Essentially the same dynamics uh, were, were at play. And historiography has tended to view 1918, the formation of Yugoslavia, as being some kind of cutoff point but actually not that much changed. Essentially, these new Yugoslav lands and peoples were slotted into the existing Serbian structures and widened the existing divisions in Serbia itself. Have you started work on the sequel already? Um, no. Um, so this is a long time coming, so it's really felt like the end of an era for me having finished this first book. And I may um, not start work straight away. I mean, uh, I may I have plans to write another book about Bosnia about the recent war in, in in Bosnia, first, so I perhaps would like this first Serbian history to um, sink in and see and see how it does. But I certainly 
plan to write a, the sequel, which will, of course, take years of, re of research uh, to do it. And part of the reason for that cutoff point was that, of 1941, was that the historiography of Second World War is, is very big as well in Serbia. And a lot of interesting research has been carried out recently about the Second World War in Serbia by Serbian historians. And most of the serious work on Serbia is done by Serbian historians, not by Western historians. Uh, so that will take, uh, it'll be a big, big project. Uh, so I say, I, I want to write another book about Bosnia um, first, uh, but it's certainly something I plan to do, the second volume of History of Serbia. As usual to finish, because this is a podcast about books, I've asked my guests to recommend two for listeners, one broadly in the same field and one personal choice. So Marco, what have you chosen? And I sort of try to choose books I think I have something to say about and which the listeners might find interesting in the context of this topic. So as my related book, I chose uh, the book by my my mentor, uh, my PhD supervisor, Ivo Banats, The National Question in Yugoslavia, Origins, History and Politics, uh, published in 1984 by Cornell University Press. And everyone who's a tour specialist in this field will, will know it, but it really is an eye-opener for anyone new to the topic of uh, Yugoslavia and its national question. So you have this sort of stereotype in people who don't know the subject very well, uh, that nationalists are essentially the same. So you have Serb nationalism, and you have Croat nationalism, and you have Bosnian Muslim nationalism, and Slavic nationalism. They're essentially copies of each other. And in his book, Ivo Banas really de demolishes this, and he just brings out all the, all the colors and flavors of, of the story. So not only do, are these nationalisms actually nationalisms actually quite different from each other, uh, but they're also different factions within each nationalism. So to kind of relate it to my uh, history. Uh, in Serbia, you had the Democratic Party that believed in the kind of unitary Yugoslav nation, and you had the, the Radical Party that was more great Serbian and believed more a uh, more exclusively Serbian model. Uh, and you know, similar kind of div divisions among the Croats uh, and other peoples. Um, so yeah, you had these Croats who were very anti-Yugoslav and anti-Serb and looked to the Habsburg Empire and later became sort of fascist, some of them did. Uh, and other Croats who were more kind of uh, Yugoslavist and believed in uniting with the Serbs to create a Yugoslav nation. So his book is really essential for kind of going beyond the stereotypes and actually understanding what national ideology looks like in all its myriad of colors and flavors. Um, so that's my first book. Another interesting thing about this book is the way the author focuses on literature, by which I mean fiction. Um, so he really read all these native uh, authors and poets and actually brought this literary uh, literary dimension into into the story that less uh, expert people were not really uh, aware of. So it's a really beautiful book to read and to get all these different flavors. And I should say also, he um, looks at um, other peoples that are often neglected. Like he looks at the Albanians in Kosovo and the Macedonians and gives them due weight uh, in his story. Now, my second book, I was wondering also which book to choose. There are lots of books that I, I um, would like to recommend, but what could I choose that was relevant, broadly relevant to the sort of things we're talking about, but not completely related. Um, and I chose this book, uh, George Mavrokordatos, Stillborn Republic, uh, Social Co Coalitions and Party Strategies in Greece, 1922-1936. So it's a book about Greece in the interwar period. Um, so Greece as a country which is, of course, different from Serbia and Yugoslavia, but not a million miles away either, another Balkan state. Again, it was very much an eye-opener of a book if you're new to subject, and I'm not a Greek specialist, but for me, this book really explained um, modern Greece in a way which hadn't been clear to me before. So Greece is, in principle, a nation-state in a way Yugoslavia wasn't. There's just one Greek nation, and Greek nationalists will 
like to present it as being a sort of homogenous nation, but what the author did in this book was explain the divisions in Greek politics that present a more complex picture. So the history of inter interwar Greece uh, was a history of multiple governmental crises, rather like what I'm talking about in Serbia. Uh, you had constant changes of government and coups d'etat. Um, the monarchy was overthrown and, re and restored. And to explain his extreme instability, he related to the fact that Greece was actually quite a divided nation. So Greece was a country that had been quite small before the Balkan Wars in the 1910s. And as a result of his victory in the Balkan Wars, had annexed um, a lot of territory, above all in what's today Macedonia, but also Crete, uh, other islands, um, uh, Western Thrace. Uh, and also imported a lot of refugees following his defeat in the war with Turkey. Madrigodatos explains that the um, the monarchists in Greece represented the old Greece, the, the core land, and the republicans represented the um, the, the new Greece, the, the new, newly acquired lands, or people from these lands who wanted to join uh, Greece. Uh, so this was a country that was unstable because it was so, it was so diverse and newly put together, newly united. And you can so then sort of link these different... Um, strands of the ideology into his bigger picture, so that the monarchists were more pro-German in the First World War, and, and the Republicans representing New Greece were more pro-allied, uh, the monarchists were also more tolerant of Jews and other minorities, and the Republicans were more sort of ethnically chauvinistic. So this kind of explains, it puts a lot of color and diversity in the story of Greece, that stereotyped as being a very uniform nation. Um, in some ways, Greece, despite being just a nation state, was similar to Yugoslavia, a country that was unstable partly because it was uh, a um, mishmash of different territories recently recently united. So it really was an eye-opener for me, this book. Today I've been talking to Marco Tullahor about Serbia and Modern History, published today by Hearst. Marco, thanks again for coming on. Thank you very much for having me.